So I had a, uh, a group of friends growing up that uh, I had a childhood, maybe some of you had this, where like I had a subdivision and in the summertime I would just hop on my bike and say, goodbye mom, I'll see you tonight. And just ride around and go to like different friends who go to the lake, go to the pool, go to the rope swing, do good things, maybe do some bad things, unfortunately. But go around and had, I just had a group of friends and they all lived throughout our subdivision. Some of that, unfortunately, is passing away. But uh, I had a group of friends and one of them, one friend I had who was very dear to me, one of my oldest friends, had a little personality quirk. Maybe you might see a character flaw and that he used to tell yarns you might say. He was a bit of a liar, right? He would, he would exaggerate, be liberal with the truth. Um, and so whenever he would tell a story, you'd be like, did that really happen? And sometimes they were outlandish and he would get caught in it. Like I went to his house one time to go play and, and he didn't want to. So he's like, I'm sorry, man, I've got homework. And I'm like, it's June. He's like, oh, uh, and he knew, like, oh, we're not even in school anymore. But, or, or sometimes, you know, we often lie, like, when we're prompt, when we want to get out of trouble or save face. Um, but he would just lie just because, like, unprompted, like, oh, this would be a good yarn to tell. Now, you know, we, you know, so we, we found it kind of, you know, kind of funny, me and my friends and stuff. Do you know anybody like that, though? Somebody who is, you know, kind of stretches the truth. It can be, you know, I'm, I'm telling this in kind of a funny way, but some of you may know that that can be really hard, right? Really harmful. Like if, even if somebody is truthful most of the time, if they have a, if you know them, that they, they tend to not always tell the truth and not always honest, it makes you come to a point where you take what they say with a grain of salt. Where at some point you have to say, are you telling me the truth right now? Imagine, if you will, if God were like that. Imagine if I said, you know, God's word. Let's say God's word, and I just tell you that God's word is 98% true. Absolutely bedrock. You can build your life and faith on it. It's 98% true. 2% of it, you know, is, is, is not exactly true. It's a little, a little bit of a stretch. But I'm not going to tell you what that 2% is. If I came to you and I said that 98% of this word is absolutely true, how would you respond? Would you say, that's great. 98% of this is absolutely true. Probably not, right? There'd be that part of you that'd be like, what's the 2%? <laughs> you know, what exactly isn't true? Is, is, is Jesus not coming back? Is that part of the not? Is, is it, am I not saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ? Is that the part that's not true? Is, you know, like, you'd start wondering in your mind after a while... Well, what's not true? Today we get, we, we get to talk about the fact that God is entirely truthful. We're talking about God's truthfulness and faithfulness. And we're not saying the way we can say that we tend to think of ourselves as, you know, even an honest person, a, a man or woman with integrity and honesty, since we are fallen people, we still catch ourselves in lies every now and then or stretching the truth or omitting certain parts of the truth. You know, we still catch ourselves with that, right? Even the most honest among us. But if we started thinking about God in those terms, if God was only mostly true, mostly truthful, mostly honest, we would have a big problem on our hands. But praise God, he is a God who is entirely true, entirely faithful. Um, we used, some theologians used to talk about the veracity of God, that he is always reliable because he always tells the truth. So in our series, The Attributes of God, that is what we're talking about today, God's truthfulness and faithfulness. So let me read to you from uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. Uh, it'll be on the screen here. And this is his definition when we talk about this. Grudem says, God's truthfulness means that he is the true God, and all his knowledge and words are both true and the final standard of truth. It's a pretty good definition we're going to work off of today. So what I would like to do is, I mean, there's so many scriptures that talk about the truthfulness of God and the faithfulness of God. And so I'm, I'm of course, going to not be able to touch everything, but I do want to discuss five ways that God is true. And then at the end of this, I'm going to offer three ways that we should live in light of this knowledge. 
So first I want to, I want to start with this. Number one, God is the true God. By this I mean God is the God who actually is, who truly exists. Isaiah 45, 5 says this, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. It's pretty direct and to the point. God says, I'm it. The Lord God reveals himself as the only God that actually exists. No matter how many gods are named, are worshipped among men, even if there are millions or billions of people that worship a God by name, the Lord says, I don't know who that is. I'm the only one who is eternal and everlasting. I am the true God. As we've often quoted this, actually, I think every week of this sermon series, we've quoted John 17, 3, where Jesus says, the eternal life consists of knowing the only true God. That's what eternal life actually is about. It's knowing not just the best God or our favorite God or our preferred God or our, our, our culturally appropriate God or our traditional God, but the only God that actually is. At least that's what God says of himself. So when scripture speaks of God being the true God, it's telling us that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the God most fully revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ is the God who actually is. Now, this is opposed to false gods, right? So he is the true God. And so, therefore, any God that is trying to uh, spoke of being existed alongside of him or apart from him does not actually exist. Speaking of God in this way is, is a response to those that worship other gods or those who deny that the God of Scripture exists. So Jeremiah 10, 10 through 12, prophet writes this, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus shall you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he, the Lord God, who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. He said, Allah didn't do that. Brahman didn't do that. Zeus didn't do that. Baal didn't do that. Molech didn't do that. The Lord God of Israel, he's the one who said, let there be light and created the world and rules it by his wisdom. So God, when we say God is the true God, we're actually saying he's the God who actually exists. The God who truly is. And I, I want to push it a little farther and say it this way. He's the God that we know to be true. When we say God is the true God, it's the God that in our hearts, everybody knows is the true God. I bought a computer recently. I had an old computer um, that fell off the desk and broke, and so I got a new one. And if you've ever gotten a new computer, you know that uh, you're, it often comes not just with the operating system, whether that's Mac OS or whether that's Windows, but it also comes with some apps or it comes with some programs. You know, it, Whether you like it or not, you may be getting a free trial subscription, of subscription to McAfee antivirus software, right? And, or, or whatever there might be on there, okay? If you don't like it and you can't delete it, People get angry, they call it bloatware, okay? But whether you like it or not, your computer comes, and it's not like a blank, you open it up. It's not like the old days where you actually have to program it yourself, like in the 80s. It comes, you open it up, you sign in, and there's applications and programs already there. So it's not a blank slate. Human beings are kind of the same way. You know, when God made us in his image, he made us in his imprint, okay, if you want to speak of us kind of like a computer, he didn't just, you know, create us and say, you're a blank slate, figure out life entirely by yourself, right? Where we are completely morally neutral beings and we have, you know, God, you could say, if you want to use this analogy, start us off with some programs, right? One of them, for example, is conscience. God made us in his image, and he gave us all a moral sense of what's right and wrong. Now, of course, sin has corrupted that. It doesn't work, per it doesn't work perfectly, 
But Paul argues that our conscience is enough to convict us before God. Like we all know innately that there are certain things that are wrong. Now we can get really wise and we can say, oh no, those things are relative. You know, there are certain things true in some cultures and not in others. Okay, I will steal your wallet. And then you tell me. I don't have to teach you. You know that's wrong, right? That's our conscience. And that is a God-given program that God puts into our hearts, puts into our being. So we come to earth with it, whether we like it or not, right? That's part of God's actually grace to us. It directs us to the true and living God. But beyond that, since we're made in God's image, we all have an innate sense that there is a true and living God. And because we exist in his image made after his likeness, not the likeness of the gods of Canaan or the gods of Egypt or Greece, or the God who truly is the true God, we're made in his image, we have a sense that he is there. And we can't escape that knowledge. Once again, now sin has darkened our understanding and confused us. But beyond that, Paul argues this, that part of our fallen condition is that we actually suppress that knowledge. The illustration I use a lot is like taking a basketball and trying to hold it underwater. It's like, uh, it's this knowledge that wants to keep on rising to the top. But we keep on trying to suppress it. It's knowledge that we would rather not have. Paul argues that in Romans 1. That, there is a, that we know not just that God exists, but through creation, we know something about him. Paul points out his eternal power and his divine nature. This is truth that we can't quite escape. This innate sense that God is true is built into us. It's programmed in. Now, as I said, you know, we were, we, we tend to suppress this because that, that, because of sinfulness, we tend to want to rebel against the true God. But we, we were made to worship Him. We're made to delight in Him. We're made to know Him and to love Him and to be like Him. So when we don't worship the true God, when we say, no, I'd rather not operate according to that, we don't just not worship anything. We just worship something else entirely, whether other gods or ourselves or something else. Sin breeds confusion. If we don't worship the true God, we worship false gods or idols or self. And that's why, especially in the Old Testament, God is consistently drawing us out saying, no, I am the true God. I am the God that you know is there. But instead, you're worshiping money or sex or power or whatever else it might be. And the gospel actually helps us to recognize and reconnect with the true God. One of my favorite ways that scripture describes salvation is this, coming to a knowledge of the truth. That's how, that's how scripture talks about what it means to be saved. When, you, when someone hears the gospel and believes by God's grace. And not just you come to a knowledge of the truth generally. Not the truth about necessarily math or, or, or grammar. Not, not truth in an abstract sense. But the truth about God and the truth about reality. And the truth about ourselves and life and salvation. Jesus says this. He's standing before Pilate and he says, For this purpose I was born and for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, of course, Pilate, being cynical and suppressing the truth, says, what is truth? But when God saves us, he brings us to our senses. When God saves us, he gives us a new heart, one that loves the God, the truth of God. When we would normally suppress it and try to be done with it it's like you let go and the truth of god rises up and you know what it's like it's like and maybe some of you experience this when you come to faith in god in in god and you you come to see life in in reality right you're like ah yes you're the god i've always known was there you're the God I've, I've wanted all along, the true God. Guys, and that's something that God does in his grace is salvation and brings us to a knowledge of who the true God is. We begin to see God, ourselves, and all of life as it really is, as God made it. Begin living in God's reality, so to speak. 
And so when we talk about the truthfulness of God, we mean, first of all, that God is the true God. But second of all, that we talk about God's truth as all of God's knowledge is true. In a few weeks, we're going to be discussing uh, the knowledge of God. And so I don't want to speak too much on this, but as we, these things kind of overlap. Scripture teaches us that God has exhaustive knowledge of himself and all things that he's made. There's nothing that God doesn't know. He knows all that is and all that could possibly be. This is talked about multiple times in Scripture. Job 37, 16 talks of God as the one who is perfect in knowledge. 1 John three twenty speaks of God who knows everything. So, so when we talk about, first of all, in creation, you know, God is, there's nothing that God is unaware of. God has perfect knowledge of all that goes on or could potentially go on in his world. But he also has perfect knowledge of himself. That may sound like it's not a big deal to you, but it actually really is. The Spirit of God knows the mind of God perfectly, Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 2. It kind of blows your mind, right? When, when we think of God, the fact that God is infinite, he has no bounds, right? He, he is a sea without banks or bottom. So his knowledge of himself is not only perfect, it's without limit. He knows himself perfectly inside and out he always knows what his will is and who he is now compare that once again if you want to that doesn't sound like maybe too mind-blowing but compare it to ourselves you don't even know what you want to eat for lunch today you know you ever do that like oh what do you want to eat oh well we could go to pramani brothers no that's too far away well we could eat at home where we could, you know like we we struggle knowing ourselves we can't figure ourselves out we take personality tests because you're like am i an introvert or an extrovert I think i'll take a test we try to strive to learn emotional intelligence right we have our spouses or our loved ones who have to tell us things about ourselves because we have blind spots right all the time they're pointing out both our good but often our flaws that we are completely unaware of right we go to counselors or therapists to help us understand like man i am thinking this way tell me why i'm thinking this way why i'm behaving this way Right? We don't even know ourselves very well. God understands entirely and perfectly and truly who he is. And beyond that, he has, he has no such problem knowing himself. He knows himself perfectly. Um, God sees and knows everything else perfectly. God is never mistaken in his perception. He sees with perfect clarity. He doesn't have any missing info or missing pieces. We never have that. We're always doing the best with the situation we have. Have you ever mediated a conflict, right? And you're hearing one side of the story. And then you go to the next person and they tell their side of the story. And you're like, something's not right here. You're telling two different stories. There's like this person's side, that person's side. And there's like the truth probably somewhere in the middle, right? And then we have to adjudicate, like, how we're going to help these people come together. Or, you know, if you, if you do that for work or with your kids, you know, there's fighting over a toy. And, you know, well, he hit me in the face. Well, she kicked me. Well, she called me an idiot. You know, whatever, back and forth, you're like, I need to somehow render judgment. But I don't know all the facts. What really happened? God never is in that situation. God never doesn't know something, right? <laughs> No creature is hidden from his sight, Hebrews 4.13 says. There's no place in creation that is hidden from him. We talked about God's omnipresence last week. We know the scriptures talk about how he numbers the hairs on your head. No thought or idea can be kept from him. God has all the facts. He's not misperceiving. He doesn't do something he doesn't know. But God's knowledge isn't true just because he has all the facts, right? Because there are situations when you feel like you have all the facts in front of you. You ever been in a situation where you feel like, I've got everything I need to solve this problem, and you still get it wrong? Just because you have all the facts doesn't mean you're going to render correct judgment. I feel like our legal system gets this wrong from time to time, right? We can have all the relevant information, relatively speaking, of a situation and still come to a wrong conclusion. Guys, but God's knowledge is complete, but it's also completely true. He is never deceived. He's never mistaken. He's never swayed by emotions the way that we are. He's never indecisive or unsure. 
God sees reality and knows reality. And this speaks to the third point. Part of the reason why that is is because, number three, God himself is the standard of truth. Right? He is the, the measuring stick by which all other truth claims have to be checked for accuracy. So when we speak of God's attributes, like God's, we say that God is truth, God is love, God is kindness, God is goodness, God is righteous. We've got to understand that we're not saying as though there is some standard out here, right? Like love, for example. That there is some outside external standard of love. You know, and we try our best to be loving, right? We know that we're never as loving as we need to be with God, with our spouse, with our friends, with our kids, with our neighbor, with our enemies. But when we say, but when we talk about the love of God, we're not just saying, oh man, God is really good at hitting that standard of love. You know, as though there's some this external standard and God is just better at it than everyone else. That's not what we're saying. First John tells us that God is love. God himself is the standard of what love is. He doesn't measure up to something else. Everything else measures up against him. Does that make sense? The same is true of his righteousness. The same is true of his holiness. The same is true of truth. God is ultimate reality. God is the true God, the true one. Everything else exists because of him. So when we talk about truth, this is a definition, I'm finally getting to a definition of truth, but this is a good definition, I think. It's that which corresponds to reality. There's, there's lots of other definitions you could use, but I think that's a pretty good one. Truth is what is actually real, what corresponds to reality, what is real, what is actual, and it is distinguished from that which is false, what's inaccurate, which is fiction, which is fantasy, which is incorrect, which is not actual. So guys, God is the supreme reality. What is real, what is actual, what he has made, what truly exists was made by God and exists through and because of him. So all that exists was decreed, designed, and made by God. So this is his world we're living in. The real world is his world. And the degree to which we agree with God and in understanding things as he does is the degree to which we're living according to the truth. The more we understand and agree with God concerning himself and ourselves and the world and morality and life and death and judgment and salvation, the more we are agreeing with God, the more we're actually living in the real world. It's one of the reasons why, and I'll talk about this later, why knowing God in truth, knowing the God of truth, is part of our salvation. Because, man, when we don't worship the true God, we believe all kinds of lies that just honestly aren't real. We're, <laughs> if we are not living according to God's truth, all of us, the degree that we're not living according to God's truth, we're actually not living in the world as it actually is, but as we would like it to be. But that's not reality. God is the standard of truth. It's, this is, and it's because of this, because God is the final authority on truth, it's because of this that we hold God's word in such high regard as the standard of truth. So where he speaks, it's the final word. So where, where philosophy or science or preference or culture or tradition or personal experience brush up against and conflict with God's word, they're wrong. That's also true of us Christians. It's not as though you just become a Christian, you're right on everything. Okay? I'm not. A few months ago, I'm not sure when it was, but I was in one of my like really opinionated days. I got opinions, man. You ever get one of those days where you're just like, I feel salty today. I feel opinionated. I've been listening to podcasts. I'm angry about things. And I'm just going to say them. And I was reading the Bible in my salty mood. And I, I swear to you, I came and I was reading, and I think it was, I think it was the Apostle Paul, and I, I promise you, I can't remember what he was talking about, but it had something to do with finances or money or something. And I actually thought to myself, you know, I'm not sure I agree with that. And I felt like the Holy Spirit going, are you serious? And like, I did like, oh, 
and I had to stop. Your pastor came to a place where he was reading scripture and said, you know, I'm not sure that I agree. Oh, guys, it's true of us too. And I said, you know what, God, I'm going to stop right there and just confess that I'm wrong. And I repented and I said, God, where I come to a place where I disagree with your word, God, you know all things. You made the world. I'm just living in it and I'm a sinful creature. And apart from you, I have no life and no knowledge. Guys, that's us. Remember, remember Job and his friends had all of these really good arguments and they were talking philosophically and from religion and tradition. And you know, and at the end of it, God just says, who do you think you are, <laughs> right? Where were you when I stretched out the heavens? Where, where, where were you? And you know, it's, it's a hard ending to the book, but at the end, Job's like, yeah, you're right, God. So guys, when I talk about God's a standard of truth, that is not like a weapon we use against atheists. Or unbelievers. That is something we have to take account of ourselves daily. We read Christians, we read the Word of God every day because we need our thinking corrected. And the degree to which our thinking is contrary to the Word of God, we need to be corrected. That's why Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God's Word, God Himself is a standard of truth. And we hold this because, number four, not only is God is the true God, all of his knowledge is true, he is the standard of truth, but God always speaks the truth. Indeed, God, Scripture tells us that God never lies, Titus 1-2. Hebrews 6-18 says that it is impossible for God to lie. Because God is true, because he knows the truth, because you know that, that it makes sense that all that God says is accurate excuse me, accurate and true. God does not lie. He does, he does not tell well-meaning false stories. He's not telling the truth 98% of the time. The other 2%, he's just stretching it to make himself look good or to make us feel better. No, God always tells the truth. Now, I will say there are times in Scripture where God allows people to be deceived. You'll, you'll come across that in Scripture. You'll see scriptures about God sending people a strong delusion, right? But whenever you see this happening, it's God, God allowing or even by an intermediary causing someone to be deceived. It's always because of a punishment. It's always because somebody has already rejected the truth. They have failed to receive the truth. And God says, okay, as punishment, as discipline even, I'm just going to allow you to believe a lie. And it becomes its own punishment. An example of this is one of the most wretched and evil kings in Israel's history is King Ahab. And God says, you know, and, and he keeps on, he won't listen to the true prophets. He listens to false prophets. And so an angel or a spirit says, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll volunteer to go be a lying spirit to the prophets. And so God says, go. Second Corinthians 18. And so this, so God as an intermediary sends this, this lying spirit into the false prophets because Ahab isn't listening to the true prophets. And so Ahab listens to the false prophets and he gets defeated, goes to battle, gets defeated and killed. But that's because of a punishment. But we see that God himself loves the truth, speaks the truth. To put it, that's putting it negatively. God does not lie, but positively he speaks the truth. I love Proverbs 35, chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. I love that word proves there's always those scriptures we read there, there's those things that say oh man sure i believe that but i'm not sure if that i'm not sure that doesn't sound like the reality that i'm experiencing you ever come across that you come across a scripture and it's hard for you because you're like god i i, I believe that you're true but if i obey this way is it going to lead to life god if i order my life according to what you're saying this is hard it doesn't seem wise it seems like this is going to make life harder for me this doesn't seem like it fits in my reality, in my world. But you know what? There are scriptures, there are, there are commands that are hard for us, and they don't seem like they're going to work. But every word of God proves true. God is not ashamed of anything that he's written. It is written in the heavens. It is inscribed. And everything that God has promised, everything that God has said, will be proven true. And he will not be ashamed. 
God doesn't reveal himself with a false face. I've always, I've always, I remember being younger and thinking about that. What if God isn't telling the truth about who he is? What if we get to heaven and things are very, very different? Well, God doesn't lie about who he is. What he says about himself and human nature and sin and salvation and eternal life is true. Every promise, every prophecy, every prediction is true. Which brings us to our fifth point. Is that God is true to his promises. And it's here where we talk about God's faithfulness. Numbers 23 verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie. Or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God keeps his promises. He's not like us, right? Fathers, we've made promises to our kids that even with the best of intentions, we've forgotten about, right? Or we didn't come through on. And they, they call us on it too, right? You promised. That's why he says God, God is not like a man or a son of man, that he's going to change his mind or forget. If he said something, he's going to do it. If he's spoken, he'll fulfill it. Now, God sometimes delays on his promises, right? But he will not fail to deliver on his promises. And there are certainly promises you see in the Old Testament to the prophets that where, where he says, I'm going to bring judgment on you. But there's like an in parentheses idea of unless you repent, like Nineveh. And when they do repent, he relents. But that was part of the reason why he sent a prophet in the first place. So that's not God breaking a promise. That's God fulfilling his word. Guys, God will always keep his promises. He will fulfill his promise, first of all, to bless his people. He will hear our prayers and answer from heaven. God will hear your prayers. He promised he will never leave us or forsake us. He promised not to leave us as orphans, but to come back for us. He he promises that he will avenge every wrong done against his children. He promises to wipe away every tear in glory. He promises to build his church and the gates of hell will not overcome. He, he makes all these great and precious promises and he will not fail to deliver even if he delays. He will All the promises he has, he will fulfill. But there's also the flip side of that as well. God is not only faithful to his promises to bless, he's also faithful in his promises to judge those who remain unrepentant. Paul preaches this in Athens in Acts 17, 30-31. Paul is preaching and he's, in Athens he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, that's Jesus. And of this he has given us assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When Paul preaches the gospel, he says, guys, God promises to save, but he also promises to judge. We should take him seriously on both. Because I'm sure um, we should, we're saying that God is as true to his threatenings as to his promises. Now, there's a warning here, guys, because there are some who don't believe in Christ or are playing with faith or are playing with religion, who kind of are avoiding dealing with the God question. Or taking seriously, making a decision one way or the other, kind of waffling, well, I'm not quite sure what I feel about all this, this, you know, Christianity, and, you know, I, and just kind of waffling, going back and forth on where God is at, and where they're at with the Lord. Not making a decision about Jesus or the gospel. And, and I think behind this, maybe there's this sense of, you know what, if God really exists, and he's as merciful and good as everyone says he is, then when it all comes down to it, surely God's not going to judge me or send me to hell or condemn me, right? Surely God wouldn't do that. Such a God, if he's really good, wouldn't refuse me entrance into heaven. That's not taking God seriously. God is true to his promises to bless, and he's true. He's telling you the truth that there is a judgment coming. If you, as a, if you have a, as, a, as a parent have ever made an empty threat, you do, you, you do that one more time and you are grounded, right? Don't, don't talk to me like that again or you're going to be in big trouble. You ever done that like you've made a threat, but then like 
You don't actually like follow through on it, right? You don't act, okay, okay, one more time and then, you know, what does that do with kids, right? Kids, maybe you have a parent or a teacher or you have a boss like that or something like that, right? When you have an authority figure that does that, you know that those threats aren't going to land. They're not going to do anything, right? What does that produce in you? That naturally produces us a behavior or an attitude of, you know, I can act how I want. I can, I can press the boundaries. I can push buttons. I'm going to get away with what I want because in the end, you're not going to do anything about it. God is not like that. He's not a liar. He doesn't make empty threats. God will not be mocked. He's telling the truth. Guys, he's true to all all of his promises. And I I want to say this. He will absolutely save to the uttermost. If If you're listening, I don't care where your life is at. If you are in the worst pit, if you feel like you are the worst person, not in this room, but in this county, you will find Christ a powerful Savior. And he will take you from a sinner and make you into a saint, make you into a beloved son or daughter, and he will bring you into his forever family, and he will wipe away every wrong and welcome you with open arms. That is a promise. All, without restriction, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But all who fail to call upon the name of the Lord, who reject him even passively, will have to stand before him. God is true to his promises. He is faithful. So there's a promise and a warning here. So if you're here and you're you're not a believer, I encourage you, or you're watching, seek the true God while he may be found. To know him, because he promises to save even the most broken, even the most train wrecked, even the most rebellious sinner, and call you a son or a daughter and a saint. So what do we do with with all of this, though? We, We talked about how God is the true God, how he knows the truth perfectly, how he himself is the standard of truth, how he always speaks truth, how he is true to his promises. What do we do with all that? that that's, that's good sounding stuff. What do we do with that? A couple application points. One, I call you to trust in the God who is faithful and true. That's where we start. If nothing else, just, just trust him. He is trustworthy. All of this is to say, if God is true, you can trust him. He is reliable. You don't have to sit there and think, well, he's 98% true. You don't have to weigh if he's lying or fibbing or stretching or exaggerating or misleading. You can trust him. Jesus has that tattooed on him, right? Um, Revelation 19, he's the one sitting on the white horse called faithful and true. Jesus is faithful and true. You will not find, if you trust him, you will not find him wanting. So actively trust in him. Trust in his promises. And also trust in his, his providence. And I want to talk a little bit about, about God's providence, right? Sometimes God reveals to us what his intent is, what he's going to do. He has his, his God has his hidden will and he has his revealed will. Right, the things that he tells us with, so that we can know with perfect clarity what God's intentions are, what he's going to do. Those are his promises. So when he tells us, I'm, I'm coming again to bring salvation and judgment, you know that is going to happen. When, when Jesus says, you know, I will never leave you nor forsake you, you can bank on that. When he says that he will hear your prayers and answer from heaven, you can bank on that. That's a promise. Right? So he, he tells you that so that you can believe it. You can find hope and joy in it. God's providences are God's tender, caring mercies for you. You know, God created the world. He rules it with power and wisdom and holiness. And he orders his creation and runs it according to his good purposes. This is, but sometimes he's working behind the scenes and he doesn't tell you what's going on. His providence is his caring mercies. It's when he intervenes in your life and he doesn't tell you it's going to happen. Think about how many times you've been driving, right? And you almost got in a car accident, but you didn't. You ever been driving and looking at your phone or something, which you shouldn't be doing, I shouldn't be doing, none of us should be doing, right? And you, uh, and you're, oh, and you swerve and you're, oh man, that, that almost happened. Or some other things happen, right? Like you get an alert, at, oh man, I totally almost forgot I had this meeting, right? And you just, something happens and, you, and, and, and it comes to mind at just the right moment. You ever been in a situation where like, like you sinned and you should have experienced consequences to it, but you feel like God rescued you from it? 
I was just talking to my, my, uh, to my parents the other day, talking about, man, there was a time in my life where I was just like running away from God. I, I, I had no sense that, that I was like in trouble or in danger. And God just like intervened and said, that's far enough. Time to turn around, right? That's God's providence. It, it, it's his coming in and sometimes unexpected, unannounced moments in your life, directing the course of history, right? Directing events to care for you and have mercy for you. God often conceals that, though. You don't know what's coming. You, you know generally God promises that he will care for you, but you don't know specifically when it's going to happen. He doesn't announce it beforehand all the time. But, there, but there's a caution here. Because God does not promise to rescue us from absolutely every evil situation that could come for us. But God is so good and so gracious, so abundant, that we may get used to it. We may get used to the fact that, oh man, you just, life sometimes feels really easy. It's not easy. God is just having a lot of providence in your life, right? He is caring for you. He is making a way for you. He's sending money and paychecks to you that, that you didn't know were going to come. There's food in the back of your pantry that you didn't know was there. He's caring for you. He's setting up relationships ahead of time so that when you come in a time of needs, oh man, I'm so glad I, I just met that person. Guys, God is so gracious and abundant in his care that we almost get used to it sometimes. We have to guard against because there will come a time when something bad does happen. When something unexpected when we do get in that car accident, when we do get sick, when we do run out of money, when something we do end up in a consequence of sin that we've been saved from multiple times. And then sometimes we're like, oh, God, how could you let this happen? Right? Don't you love me, God? Aren't you a good God? Meanwhile, God's been saving us and protecting us and providing for us day in, day out, day in, day out. And there's that one time, according to God's purposes, because he has a reason, a good, loving reason for allowing hardship or evil to befall us. There are times when, when, when stuff like that happens and we don't understand it. God, are you true? Do you keep your promises? Absolutely. But we understand that God's providences and, and, his, and his promises are similar, but they're not the same thing. God often hides what he's, his providence is, but he makes his promises clear. So here's the thing. There are times, I want you to be aware of the times where God is working in your life and, and, and give him praise and give him thanks when you see his mercies in your life. But the times when, when things happen that are bad, that are evil, don't assume that God is somehow breaking a promise. Because you know that he'll never leave you or forsake you. That is a promise. So when you can't understand what he's doing in the day in, day out of life, trust what he said. Trust the promises. There are things that he's doing in your life, good, and things that are hard. That you don't actually know what it'll all go with. So you know what? God keeps things from you and I. Trust what he has told us. Let the hidden things belong to the Lord. But the things he has revealed to us are for us and for our children. This is, this, so even the hard things are, are for our good. So Christian, count on the faithfulness of your God. Trust God who is faithful and true. Secondly, we must speak the truth and not lies or deceptions. Guys, God speaks the truth. If we're his people, we need to be truthful in our speech as well. Which means a couple things. Number one, no false witness. Right? It's one of the Ten Commandments. Do not bear false witness. Do not tell lies about someone. The original um, context of that is really the highest offense that could be would be lying about somebody in court. Right? But it actually goes down from there. The Ten Commandments function by kind of uh, speaking to the extreme end of a sin, but the, the sins that are kind of less than it or, or less in severity are still underneath it. So it does mean bearing false witness in court, but he's not saying, hey, you know, as long as you don't lie in court, you can lie in any other situation. No, we shouldn't bear false witness in that kind of situation, but we shouldn't tell lies about others anyway. We shouldn't gossip. We shouldn't slander. Those are evil things. We shouldn't withhold the truth for self-benefit or to harm others. You ever do that? Like, I'm not actually lying. I'm just not going to be upfront with the truth. You know, I'm just going to kind of hold back on that, right? When the truth should be said and we say nothing, that's a form of bearing false witness. It's sinning. Or how about when we, when we say a partial truth, right? 
when, when, you, when you're fighting with somebody, when you're in a counseling situation, when you're, when you're mediating a conflict, right? And someone tells their side of the story. You ever hear this where like someone's telling you the side of their story and you're like, man, the person who harmed you is completely wrong, obviously. They are the worst, most evil person if you just listen to that side of the story. And you realize that when someone tells you that, you feel like, you know, I feel like you're probably leaving a few things out. Because it seems like you have done absolutely nothing wrong and you have no part and you are the perfect victim. But the other person is the devil, right? If that's ever the situation, you're probably leaving something out. And we should not be like that, right? When we, when we uh, leave out, when we don't speak the full truth, when we speak only, when we edit out important bits of information that, make, uh, that would make us look bad or make the other person look right or would damage us in some way, a partial truth is not a lie. Aren't you glad that God doesn't tell partial truths? It's the full truth. We shouldn't use manipulative speech, which is kind of a line when we're when we're using false modesty or flattery or we talk about empty threats. You know, we're kind of you know trying to manipulate people by not speaking truthfully because we're trying to gain something from them. All right, con men do that kind of thing. Right, but we also need, so we need to speak the truth. But as Christ commands us, we are to speak the truth in love. Because you all know it's very possible to be that person. I'm just going to drop truth bombs and let what happens, happens. All right? We are not called to do that. All right? And sometimes we get that way. All right? I, t- I talked about how earlier I-, I can get opinionated at times. Well, I'm just going to speak the truth and let things happen. Well, maybe there is a time just to say it bluntly, Right? But there are times when Christians must call out sin, must confront a brother and sister, must speak boldly. But more often is the case, we need to always make sure that we are speaking truth in love. So when we do speak truth, especially when it's a hard truth, we're doing so in a tone, in a manner, with words that demonstrate love and care and compassion, as God does. Even when God calls us to repent that is with grace and with mercies attached so that we actually will repent, right? You don't say, repent, jerk. I mean, we don't do that, all right? Sometimes we feel that way. Like, I'm justified. I did my job. No. If you speak the truth outside of love, whether to a brother or sister in Christ or someone else, if you have not spoken it with love, you have not done the truth. You've not done what's called of you. So we must speak the truth in love to one another. And we should not make false promises without any intention of keeping them. We, so as, as Christians, how do we respond to the truthfulness of God? We should be like him in truthfulness, in our speech. Thirdly, lastly, we must live truthfully and faithfully. Truthfulness should be lived out not just with our words, the things we say, but also in our lives. We must be people of integrity, so we don't cheat at school. We don't cheat at work. We give it our best to honor God. We don't overcharge for work that we do. We don't misrepresent the work that we've done to make ourselves look good. We don't let people believe that we're working when we're not. We don't lie on our tax returns. right? We don't lie for any financial gain. We don't accept bribes. We must be faithful to our marriage vows. That's a promise we've made. So we're not going to commit adultery. We're not going to cheat on our spouse physically, emotionally, or otherwise. Which means that we as people are going to live lives that exhibit truth of honesty and integrity. That is what God calls us to be in the world. It means that we're not hypocrites either. Where we teach what is true, we say all the right things, but we're not living according to it. Where we're saying, this is what you should do, this is right, but I'm going to go ahead and do this over here, right? Intentionally doing that. That's called hypocrisy, and Jesus' harshest criticisms were for people who were hypocrites. The Jewish leaders of his day who were hypocrites on this account. Guys, since our God is faithful and true in his speech and in his activity, we must be as well. In, In doing so, we're giving God glory And we're living in reality, and we're helping other people see reality as well. Guys, just speaking truthfully and living truthfully is a loving thing. Between ourselves as a congregation, 
to your neighbor, speaking the truth in love, living truthfully as an employee, as a husband, as a wife, as a brother or sister, as a son or daughter. As God is faithful and true, you must be as well. I'd like to end um, my sermon by reading from 1 John 5, verses 20 and 21. The worship team can come up as I read this. But at the end of uh, the Apostle John's first epistle, he writes this. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Guys, the one thing we want to take away is the Lord God is the true God. And Jesus Christ came to testify that He is the true God and to connect us to the true God. You can actually know and live in and have eternal life with the true and living God only through Jesus Christ. So trust Him, have faith, and walk with the living and true God. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we just give you praise that you are the true God, that you are faithful. Lord, we thank God. It is encouraging to know that when we read your word, Lord, it is a steadfast uh, testimony, Lord, that your word is truth, that we can rely upon it. Lord, that our faith is not an empty faith or a blind faith. Lord, it is simply trusting on the word that you have said is true. And Lord God, I know all of us here struggle with doubts in different ways. So Lord God, thank you for your mercy and your patience. God, but help us to know the true God. Lord, help us to rely upon you. Help us to build our lives upon you and to live lives of truth. Lord, I pray that you would um, cleanse our thinking. Lord, help us to live according to the word of truth and not believe lies, lies that we tell ourselves, lies of culture. Lord, help us to love our neighbor and one another as we speak the truth in love. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.